Let's open in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this beautiful day you've given us. Thank you, Lord God, we come together as a congregation, as a body of Christ to worship you, to give you praise, also to hear your word. And Lord, we just ask that your spirit and your word would speak. Not of my own, not of my flesh. May you lead and guide this time. We thank you, Lord God, for your goodness and your love for us, Lord. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, One of the uh, joys of pastoral ministry and especially the ones that I was, uh, I'm thankful to have experienced over the years, one of the joys is being able to provide premarital counseling. I've done it a, a number of times, and I especially enjoy uh, the mostly enthusiastic look on the couple's face in their eyes, right? Mostly. It's mostly enthusiasm. There's a little bit of fear, of course, right? But I love seeing the enthusiasm of these couples' faces and their eyes. They have this expression as we're going through it, like, oh, what could possibly go wrong? Right? It's going to be great. It's going to be beautiful. We get to wake up to each other, rainbows every day, flower, fresh flowers on the table, birds sing every morning, right? What could go wrong? And we go through the premarital counseling, the different subjects and different things, and there's just this optimism with them. Oh yeah, we love each other. We know each other so well. What could go wrong? We're ready. We're going to take it on. So I love seeing that. I love seeing that and the enthusiasm, the smiles, and all the kisses. You know, know, we're going to kiss each other every day, greet each other that way. I hear some snickering laughter by the marriage vets out there. Um, as amazing as marriage is, right? As amazing as the marriage relationship is, it takes work, right? It takes an investment. It takes um, maintenance to have a healthy relationship, right? You can buy a brand new car, but that brand new car won't just stay that way. You need to take care of it. You need to make sure you maintain it, right? It takes work to be able, and this investment to make sure that that car stays in healthy condition, And I've seen a lot of men take better care of their cars than they do their marriage. Now, just just to clarify, I'm relating marriage, not the wife as the car, okay? I thought about this, and I need to make sure they're not thinking of their, their woman as a car. No, 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 right? I'm using the analogy of maintaining a healthy car. It's very similar. You have to maintain it. You have to put time in it. You have to take care of it. I hope that analogy doesn't get me in trouble. But today, we're going to tackle a very difficult, sensitive subject. It's controversial 
because there's been a lot of debate about it for generations, and we're going to see about that today in today's passage. But we're going to talk about marriage, but specifically as it relates to divorce. So what we're going to do, we won't tackle every topic related to marriage and divorce. But what we're going to do is first understand the passage that we're dealing with in Mark so that we can have a biblical perspective on both marriage and divorce. Then we'll address, some, uh, we'll address how we ought to respond and approach marriage based on these passages. Now, if you're, if you're married, this will be very applicable. If you're single, this is like this section here, and maybe some scattering over there. If you're single, consider this preparation of how to understand the marriage relationship. Okay? And my plan is to tackle more specific things Friday night in the Bible study as we look at this, these passages a little bit more focused. So we're not going to deal with all the questions about marriage and divorce in this particular message. We'll talk a little bit more about that Friday night in um, Adult CF. And is that a little bit of a plug? You can take it as that way. All right. So let's turn to Mark chapter 10 verse 1. Mark chapter 10 verse 1. It goes like this. And rising up, He went from there to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered around him again. And according to his custom, he once more began to teach them. And some Pharisees came up to him, testing him, and began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce a wife. Now before we go on further, let's understand the context of the situation. Jesus is entering the region of Judea. He's going into Jerusalem, right? Remember from the very beginning of our study of Mark, we talked about this journey of our study of Mark. Jesus is, dest- is headed towards Jerusalem, ultimately to the cross. And he has been ministering to all the surrounding regions, particularly in Galilee, but now he's going south. He's going into Judea, into Jerusalem. And just like we've seen in similar situations and passages, as he enters, he attracts a crowd. So a crowd comes over to Jesus, and he, again, is teaching the crowd. But just like in many other scenes we saw, along with the crowd, who is there? His challengers, right? His opposition. So here come the Pharisees. And the Pharisees come, and they come to test him. Let's catch Jesus. Let's see what he has to say about an issue that has been debated for generations. What's this debate about? Now, in the time, there was two basic rabbinic schools that that had a basic uh, thought when it came to divorce. These two basic uh, perspectives or teachings about divorce— the school of divorce. And the question was, what is legal divorce according to Jewish law? In other words, what grounds can a man divorce his wife? Right? Again, majority of the time, it was the husband who divorced the wife. Okay? So at the core of this debate was the interpretation of Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. And we'll get to that in a second. So the two schools of thought, 
The first school of thought is that a husband can only divorce his wife for sexual immorality and specifically for adultery. And this was based on an interpretation of the word indecency, that's, uh, and we'll get to this passage in Deuteronomy 24.1. So the school of Shammai, they, they saw that a husband can only divorce a wife on the basis of sexual morality, and that was specifically adultery. But there was a second school of thought, the school of Hillel, and they said a husband can divorce his wife for any reason that deple- displeases him. For any particular reason. And they base that on the interpretation of this phrase where it says, finds no favor in his eyes. Again, we'll look at that passage in a second. So this school of Hillel, they'll say, for any reason, if the wife cooks a meal, burns the meal, that is grounds for divorce. She finds no favor in his eyes. If he no longer is attracted to his wife, that would be grounds for divorce divorce. So we see the two schools. One gives only a single provision, particularly adultery or some kind of sexual immorality. The second one is that there could be any grounds for divorce. Okay, so that was the debated issue of the time. So the context presented here is that the Pharisees are challenging Jesus What will he say? Which school will he favor? Which one will he say is the right perspective? Which camp will he align with? Matthew, in his account, says it more specifically. They're asking him, what cause is there for divorce? Can someone divorce a wife for any reason? So they're putting Jesus on the spot. Who will he side with? Let's read on in Mark. And Jesus answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Now Jesus knows what's going on, right? He knows the intentions of the Pharisees and he knows the debate of the day. And he doesn't begin by taking a side, right? He doesn't start by taking a side referring to which school of thought he has. What does he do? He first refers them back to Moses. What did Moses command you? What commandment did he communicate to you? And they responded by echoing this, what was permitted. And they said, well, he permitted to write a certificate of divorce to send her away. Now, in our modern ears, especially for you ladies, you women out there, you're thinking of that and say, well, that doesn't sound right. What do you mean she can, he could just send her away? That sounds pretty brutal, right? And in fact, in the culture in the day, that was the case. Women were not treated certainly as how God designed, but they were treated very much as property of the men at the time. And so this issue of writing of doors, he's saying, yeah, you can permit to send her away. So if a man wanted to divorce his wife, he can do so. But what could happen in that culture in the time, if he changes his mind for any reason, he can claim her back. So this provision we're going to look at in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse one we're going to see what this reference is that the, the Pharisees and Jesus reference here in Deuteronomy 24, 
verse 1. Right, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. Okay, so you see that what, what we referred to there. And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house. And she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. And if the, the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hands and sends her out of the house, or if the latter husband dies who took, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife since she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. So let's put this in perspective within the culture and the time. By writing a certificate of divorce, by this permission, it allows this woman to have her freedom. She is no longer bound by this husband. And so the husband cannot just change his mind and claim her back. But what this passage is specifically dealing with is saying, forbidding that if this woman divorced or marries again and either divorces again or remarries because or the husband dies, the original husband cannot claim her back as his own. So this sounds kind of weird in our culture, in our context, but this is really kind of a protection for this woman, that this woman would not be used later on, particularly by the original husband, or the husband would not use some deceitful intention to claim her back. So that is the, the passage that this debate on, especially in verse 1. And so when the Pharisees reference this passage, what they're focused on is the allowance, what is permitted. And they're focusing on you are allowed to write a certificate of divorce for the woman. What's Jesus' response? But Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. Consequently, they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So again, what we see Jesus in his response, he doesn't directly answer the Pharisees' questions, right? Remember, the Pharisees are asking, for what grounds can a man divorce his wife? Is there any reason, or can they divorce for any reason? Jesus doesn't directly answer that question, but what he does is he explains why the provision was given in the first place. That's his first response. Why was this permission, this, this certificate of divorce, even a thing? He says, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. The reason for even the option for divorce is due to the hardness of heart, either by one or both parties. The hardness of heart. The reason for this debate of divorce is so you are too hard-hearted to see the real 
issue. What does hardness of heart represent? This Greek word for hardness of heart is this one word, and it's used in three different times, but in two particular contexts. The two contexts, it's used both in describing this situation by both Matthew and Mark, describing hardness of heart when it comes to divorce. The second context, Jesus uses it to describe the disciples' their unbelief in the resurrected Lord. Those are the two instances this word hardness of heart is used to describe the heart of divorce and unbelief in the risen Lord. So you look at these two contexts, this word is used, and it's not used for any good reasons, right? In both instances, the hardness of heart is not an admirable condition. It describes a dullness to conviction. It describes a lack of faith, an unwillingness to see and do what is honorable to the Lord. Jesus continues and still does not answer the question directly. Instead, he says, this is why this permitted, this permit, this allowance happened in the first place because of the hardness of hearts but what else does he say he addresses the more important issue and that is remember the marriage relationship jesus is going to bring them back to the very beginning the very first human relationship god created and instituted and it was the husband and wife relationship Genesis 1 27 it says and God created man in his own image in the image of God he created them male and female he created them so God made male and female distinctly different right unique from each other God created them distinctly different but complementary and created for union created male and female he created them both in his image but he created them for union it's distinct but in union the distinct but in union is a divine attribute of the godhead right you think about god the trinity the father the son and the spirit are distinct from each other but yet they are united in relationship they're united right there's a union between them Right? It's hard to picture, hard to understand, and hard to grasp, but that is the nature of the Godhead. They're distinct, but they are one in union. They don't exist outside of each other. They don't do things separate from each other in the sense that, well, you know, the son's like, I didn't know the father had that in mind, right? They're in union. So I don't think it's any coincidence that when God created man and woman, male and female, in his image, and in the first relationship they are to enjoy, there's this quality about the relationship that there's distinction, yet union in the two. Certainly on a much, much, much smaller scale. But it's interesting that in that first relationship, God designed for that man and woman to enjoy this distinction, but yet union goes on in genesis 2 24 through 25 it says for this cause a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife and they shall become one flesh and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed 
Notice, God's intention of the marriage relationship. Man leaves his parents and cleaves to his wife, and they become one flesh. We see God designed physical and sexual intimacy to directly relate to marriage is directly related to the marriage union of the man and the woman. Yes, it's the means of procreation, right? I think everybody's taking biology and all that kind of stuff. But also, it consummates and represents the special union of the relationship between the husband and wife. Sexual intimacy, sexuality... And physical intimacy is directly related to the marriage union relationship. So if you think of it that way, right? How God created that to be directly linked, to be enjoyed within the husband-wife relationship. We can see how people have distorted the concept of sexuality, especially today. You think, well, why do you keep mentioning this, Pastor Mike? I mention this, I emphasize this here and there because it's all around us. And that idea of this this messaging of sexuality is not only all around us, but it's in almost virtually every age group now. Right? The messaging is out there. But sexuality is a gift from God designed and intended for the marriage relationship between a man and a man and a woman for each other. See, the world and people distort it, right? They distort sexuality. They see it as an expression of individuality. They see it as an expression of as you desire it to be. But God's saying from the very beginning, I give this to you for your enjoyment of each other. It's for each other. It is, represents the union of the husband and wife for the male and female. This is God's design for the couple. The union, though, is not just a physical one either. Physical intimacy is not just, it's, the union is not just that alone. What it, it's a relational union. Notice this, the man is to leave his parents and cleave or cling to his wife. The marriage symbolizes a transition of one dependent relationship to another. That Hebrew word for cling to, or to, to cleave, to cling or stay with. That's the beauty of the marriage relationship. The husband is like, all right, you are dependent upon your, your mom and your dad. But now you are starting your own family unit. You are to leave there. Now, it doesn't mean like you're abandoning them, right? It doesn't mean you have to pack your bags. All right, see it, right? It's not just that. But you're leaving that, and you are clinging to your wife. You're staying with your wife. This is the relational intention from God for the husband and wife. You cling to that woman, to that wife, And Jesus accentuates this point of this two become one in his response to the Pharisees. He says, for this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and the two shall become one flesh. 
Consequently, they are no longer two, but one. The husband and wife, they don't lose their individuality, right? Their individual identity. But they're to consider themselves one. Consider themselves one. Let's go on. Mark uses this last point that Jesus makes to the Pharisees. He says, What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. What God has joined together, that word to yoke together. I don't know if you've ever seen like cattle like uh, do farming, right? They have this wooden thing that's called a yoke that's placed on them. And together they, they plow the fields, right? This picture of yoke, you're, you're yoked together. You're bound together. You're going to experience life together. Both joys and the hardships, you're yoked together. You're not just one, one individual, two, but you're one. Jesus declares, let no man separate this. This is the foundational point Jesus is arriving to. This is what you need to remember. Not the provision stuff for a second, but remember this. So we started the Pharisees questioning Jesus, right? Well, now it's the disciples' turn. It goes on. And in the house, the disciples began questioning him about this again. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. So here in Mark, the disciples, they wait until they're alone with Jesus, right? We've seen this familiar scene, right? Jesus is teaching the, the crowds and the Pharisees, challenging them. And then at the end, the disciples wait till they're alone with Jesus in the house and say, uh, Jesus, uh, you know, about that thing. So what does Jesus tell them? Whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. Likewise, if the woman divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. So Jesus expands the discussion. Why does he say that? Because he brings it back to the original intention from God. That they would be forsaking the union for another. Going back to what we read in Genesis. From the beginning, the marriage relationship was a union between male and female, husband and wife. It's not simply a living arrangement. Marriage is not simply an adaptable stage of life. Well, this is a stage of life we get married, and if it doesn't work out, then, you know, we divorce and we find somebody else. But going back to the original question, are there exceptions? And this is what the Pharisees asked Jesus, right? Are there exceptions to this? And many ask this today. Well, I'll say this gets a little complicated for pastors to answer this question. Are there exceptions? Why? Why is it complicated? Because there are circumstances and marriages that are unhealthy, abusive, ungodly, unbiblical. But there are also marriages in which a spouse is just looking for any reason to divorce and get out of it. 
So provisions can often lead to excuses. If you say, well, this provides a, a, a reason to, sometimes those lead to excuses. And we have a, a skillful way as humans to find reasons, right? To find justifications, to reason among ourselves. Well, then we qualify for this. So that means we can do this also. So there are exceptions so are there exceptions for divorce that God permits? And there's really two, this really is two questions here. When you ask, is there, is there exceptions for divorce? There's two questions when you ask this, when you're looking at it biblically. The first one, does God allow for divorce at all? The second question, does God allow for divorce and remarriage in which remarriage is not considered adultery. That's really the two questions that we face in this passage. Does God allow for divorce? Does God allow for divorce and remarriage in which the remarriage is not considered adultery? So the permissions that are generally referred to that we're talking about, the two, in the discussion of divorce, the two provisions that are generally talked about is sexual immorality, and usually it involves adultery, right? And the other one is if you have an unbelieving spouse. When you talk about this idea of is, is divorce okay among Christians, usually the two exceptions, the two things that are talked about is either adultery or sexual immorality and an unbelieving spouse. And that goes off of two passages in Matthew and in 1 Corinthians. We're going to take a look at that real quick. In Matthew chapter 5, 31, it's the same context that we saw in Mark, except in this passage, Jesus in his response, he says, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the cause of unchastity, that word for unchastity is used for a general reference to sexual immorality. So a lot of discussion is what did Jesus mean by sexual immorality? Is it just adultery? Does it expand to more different things than that? So Matthew includes this particular portion in Jesus' response. But in this, this instance, the exception Jesus makes is not whether they can divorce but rather if the divorce is a result of sexual morality and the remarriage would not be considered adultery. So if it happens where there's a sexual immorality as a cause for divorce, can there be remarriage because of cause of that divorce? So the clarification in this passage needed is that remarriage is assumed if one is divorced. So the reason why Jesus says this exception is that based on the assumption that if you divorce, you'll want to remarry. Okay, following me? The other exception discussed is based on 1 Corinthians 7, 10 through 16. It goes like this. Paul is talking to the church. But to the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does, let her remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And that the husband should not send his wife away. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, let him not send her away. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband, and he consents to live with her, let her not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. 
The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? So Paul addresses this scenario where you have a believer, a Christian, whether it's a husband or a wife who's married to an unbeliever, and I'm sure this happened often at the time, right? The gospel's being spread and one spouse, and this often is the case. A spouse receives Christ, but their spouse is an unbeliever. What's Paul saying? If the unbelieving spouse desires to stay married, okay, you became a Christian, okay, that's kind of weird, you know, that kind of changed overnight, but okay, I can, we can deal with it. We can still live together. We can still be husband and wife. Paul's saying, stay together. That's Paul's emphasis. Stay together. If your unbelieving spouse is willing to stay and remain married, stay together. Do not divorce. Do not seek to separate. To those married, he says, do not seek to leave or divorce. If you have an unbelieving spouse and they're willing to stay together, stay. But he also says in verse 10, if you have been separated, still seek for reconciliation or remain unmarried. So Paul is saying to the, to, to the believers there, if you're in a situation where you have separated, still try to seek Reconciliation or remain unmarried. There's Paul's advice. And he says, if the unbelieving spouse is unwilling and says, you know, we want a divorce, then the believing spouse is not under bondage of that marriage. So this brings us back full circle again to Jesus' response to the Pharisees. Jesus responds by referring to the sacred bond God designed in the marriage relationship. The marriage relationship is this metaphor, this picture of God's relationship with his people, right? If you look in the Old Testament, marriage becomes this picture of God's relationship to Israel. And you look in the New Testament, right? Marriage is this picture of Christ's relationship with the church. So marriage is a precious, sacred bond that God created. And thus he wants us to treat it as such, to honor it as such. In Malachi 2.16, we see it says that God hates divorce. So we need to understand that. Understand how God values the marriage relationship. His provision of sexual immorality in Matthew is not endorsement for divorce, but rather he addresses the concern of adulterous remarriage, Right? We're not to read that as endorsement by God. So going back to the question, does God allow for divorce? Does God allow for divorce and remarriage in which the remarriage is not considered adultery? I cautiously say yes and yes. But I say cautiously Because I don't want you to be quick to think I'm thinking about you. And it may not be you here, but whoever's listening or watching. I don't want you to think I'm talking about you specifically when I say that does God allow for divorce and does he allow divorce and remarriage that's not considered adultery 
and I say yes and yes, that I'm necessarily speaking to you. Because this message is not intended to be marriage counseling. I'm not addressing every particular instance. Every circumstance marriage has its unique situations, challenges, and environments, and kind of deals with that individually, right? So this message isn't like intended to be like a blanketed premarital or marital counseling who are like, you say, whoa, Pastor Mike said yes, or he said no, right? Since I can't control how you interpret and apply these to your circumstances, I want to conclude this message and, and conclude this passages with these things to consider. Before you, and I'm not saying you necessarily here, but before you seek the answer to can they or I get a divorce, I want you to marinate on some things from this passage to think about these things. First thing, going to Jesus' response to the question. It says marriage is a sacred bond created by God designed for a husband and a wife to enjoy union of two individuals in both physical and relational intimacy. I want you to think about that. How God designed the marriage relationship. It's this bond created by God, designed for a husband and a wife to enjoy union of two individuals becoming one, physically but also relationally. That is the marriage relationship that God intended us to enjoy, to have. Just as God designed his marriage relationship to reflect our relationship with him and we're to honor it as such, we have this sense. We need to have this sense and we look at our spouse to be able to say, she is mine. And I am hers. That's the perspective we ought to have in, in marriage. I belong to her, and she belongs to me. To those of you who are single out there, let this serve as a caution and a reminder of what marriage relationship is. Yeah, I know, I'm kind of making this group a little uncomfortable. Like, don't look at me. I'm not ready for marriage. I'm, I'm way too young. So I'll look at anyone else out here. To the single person, understand the beauty of the marriage relationship and how sacred, how amazing, but beautiful that is, but how precious and how God designed it to be. No, you got to look at that person and say, can I say I belong to them? And they belong to me. And that we are going to be yoked together, both good and bad. And we are one. We are one. It's an important thing to think about. The second thing to think about, and I'm going to approach that to dating. I've said this to dating advice to my kids, and this is not in my notes, right? But I'm going to say this, right? We told our kids, when you're approaching dating, Right? I, I'm a guarded kind of person. I, I guard my heart kind of closely, right? I don't like it being fooled around. You know what I mean? Maybe you don't. You know what I mean? Approach it as, can I give this person my heart? 
Can I trust them with my heart? And will they trust me with theirs? Right? If not, don't mess around. Because you'll end up compromising. More times than not, right? Okay, back to the message. Second thing to think about. Divorce was never intended by God to be an option. But became a concession due to hardness of heart. Divorce was never intended by God to be an option, but was a concession due to hardness of heart. To the believers, I assume if you're asking this question about provision for divorce, you are asking because you desire to be honoring to God, right? If you're a believer and you find yourself in the situation in marriage where like you're, you're contemplating and wondering, is divorce even an option? Can I divorce and it be honoring to God, right? I'm assuming that you have this desire to be honoring God if you're asking this question. If you desire to honor God, I say submit to the lordship of Jesus in your life. Commit to stay together and honor the Lord in your relationship. Do not allow hardness of heart to destroy your marriage. Don't let hardness of heart destroy your marriage relationship. If you're still contemplating, consider this question. If I seek divorce, can I remain single and unmarried for the remainder of my life and live faithful to the Lord? Consider that. If I did get a divorce, can I remain single and remain faithful to the Lord? Because divorce was never intended by God to be an option. Third thing, husbands and wives, you are not each other's enemies. If you're sitting next to your spouse, look to each other and say, you are not my enemy. All right, I'm not going to put you all on the spot. All right? You're all looking a little nervous. You can look at each other, look to each other and say, I am not your enemy. <laughs> I was wondering how that goes. I was wondering whether should I look around or should I just kind of look and just pretend what I don't see. But this is an important concept to understand in marriage. Husbands, your wife is not your enemy. Wives, your husband is not your enemy. Satan is our enemy. Satan wants to destroy your marriage. Satan wants to destroy your family. He is the enemy. And he will try to cause conflict, compromise, whatever it may be, small disagreement or large disagreement. And in fact, you are probably your worst enemy. Because many times you go into marriage 
Not thinking two becomes one flesh and, and, and intimacy and everything is for each other. You kind of still think of it as yourself, right? Dating, when you date somebody, is for selfish intention, right? You're, you're lonely, you're a little lovesick, you, want, you see everybody else getting married and, and hooked up and stuff. You're like, oh, I'm, I'm missing out. So you enter dating for personal gain. Marriage is for each other. You enter marriage for the other person. It's not self-seeking. If you enter marriage self-seeking, you will always see your marriage as self-seeking unless you change that perspective. And see, when we get into marriage conflicts, if you see your spouse as the enemy, they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing for me. That's when friction happens, right? And the enemy will seize upon that. You yourself will entertain that. So more times than not, marital problems are individual problems brought to surface within that relationship. A lot of times, marital conflict and problems is an individual problem. And those individual problems surface in these certain instances and circumstances, and it causes conflict. And a lot of people look at divorce and say, well, if I just separate myself from this person, my life will be extremely better. It'll be all better. But oftentimes, those problems just end up traveling and going with that person because you're stuck with yourself, right? And you enter another relationship and the same problems surface. This is not a blanketed statement. Again, this is not marital counseling for your particular situation. But we need to understand your spouse is not your enemy. Fourthly, I got to, sorry, I got to wrap it up. If you find yourself in an unhealthy marriage relationship, submit yourself before the Lord first. Submit yourself before the Lord. Before you set out to change your spouse, ask the Lord, Lord, can you mold and shape me? Before you pray for God to transform that, that hard-hearted husband or that hard-hearted wife, like, oh my goodness, she just says, oh, I can't, I can't take it anymore. Before you pray that, that God will just strike that person and not dead, but like strike them and change them, pray that the Lord will help you see your spouse as you ought to, that you can see your circumstances as you ought to and see yourself as you ought to. God, help me to see how I need to view my spouse. Help me to see how I'm supposed to understand our circumstance. Help me to see myself. Are there valid reasons why my spouse should be upset with me? Is there valid reasons that I may be wrong in the circumstances? Is there something that in me that's accentuating this situation and this problem? We have to be willing to submit ourselves before the Lord. Pray that the Lord will change your heart, soften your heart, that, Lord, I don't want to be hard-hearted in my circumstance. Right? Pray for your spouse. Pray for your marriage as if you are on the battlefield together. Pray for each other in the conflict as if you are on the battlefield together together and not on opposing sides i'll end with this lastly fight for your marriage i didn't say fight each other right (laughs) i'm not condoning fighting each other fight for your marriage 
Fight against the enemy that wants to destroy it. Fight for your children and the health of your family. Defend it. Know who your enemy is. See, I phrase this, this, this message as delicate and insensitive a topic as it is because the power of suggestion is very powerful. A suggested thought, and I think this is why Jesus answered the way he did. He brought the answer to the question to the idea of marriage, what marriage is. Because if he says one way or the other, you run with it. And then you find out all the reasons why to justify. Well, I can fit that category. I guess God allows me to do it. The power of suggestion is very powerful. And I'm careful to not suggest divorce is the right option. Nor do I want to suggest it is never the option. Considering how harmful, unhealthy, and ungodly a marriage can be. The point of it. The emphasis by both Jesus and both Paul, have a heart of reconciliation. Seek healing and restoration in your marriage relationship. That should be our primary desire. Again, we may not have, I may not have addressed all circumstances. Maybe you know somebody who's growing through things, and you say, well, Pastor Mike, what about this? What about this? Bring those questions Friday night. <laughs> the marriage bond is a sacred bond by God, a beautiful thing, a beautiful thing to honor. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Lord God, we come before you. We thank you for the gift, the model of the marriage relationship, Whether we are married or not, whether we may enjoy that relationship or not, Lord, that is a picture of our relationship with you. And Lord, we are to hold it in honor, in reverence. May we do so, Lord God. We thank you. And Lord, I pray for the marriages in this place in Generations Church. I pray, Lord God, that if there's healing that needs to be made, that, Lord, you would stir in the hearts of those who call you Lord. And I pray that you'd give each a desire to reconcile, to heal, and be honoring before you, Lord. I pray for that. I pray for the marriages here, the families here, that we would desire a healthy relationship in our homes. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and let's worship together.